This is this is the big life. Big, big, big life. The show for people who want to live life large. I'm Ray Waters. Daryl Rhodes is a comedian who tours upwards of 40 weeks out of a year, but he's more than that. He's a musician who's accompanied the likes of Chuck Berry and Hollywood star Jeff Bridges in his movie Crazy Heart. He's an innovator as the founder of the Hava Av- <laughs> Ha Vishnu. Hava Vishnu. Ha Vishnu. Ha Vishnu. <laughs> I said it well in practice. Daryl Rhodes was the front man for one of Rock's truly innovative bands in the middle to late 1970s. Kurt Loder from the Rolling Stone magazine said Rhodes is one of the most savagely gifted writers and performers in the country today. He's close to finishing his memoirs, which will describe his life growing up in Atlanta and his life on the road for the past 40 years. He's also a friend. Daryl, I am honored to have you on The Big Life. As I am to be here. Thank you. Say that one more time. Ha ha Vishnu. Just say ha. You're you're rushing the Vishnu. It's ha ha Vishnu. There was a band. There was a band. John McLaughlin was a fusion uh, jazz uh, artist. It still is. And he had a band called the Maha Vishnu. So, of course, we did a takeoff of it called the Ha 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 Vishnu. Vishnu. And you know, in practice, I said that right. hundred times. Ha ha Vishnu. All welcome, right. welcome to my world. <laughs> <laughs> Let me start with comedian stuff because I've been so excited about talking to you. Um, you work 40 weeks a year doing stand-up across the country. What's your take on comedy in the U.S. right now? Um, well, I mean, it, it's, it's uh, the, the state of comedy I'm, on TV, of course, is, is, doesn't reflect really what's going on in the clubs. And the clubs uh, had an explosion back in the 80s and early 90s where you could work 40 to 50 weeks a year, and you could work four or five days, six days a week, which I did for a number of years. And so now when you say 40 weeks, it's not really accurate because, um, and some of it's by design, and some of it's because it, it's just not practical anymore. You, It's more difficult now to work that much. There's okay. not as many clubs working, you know, that many nights a week. Is but, that just is that just a trend that happens? It's just it was hot and then it's not as hot now. I think so. I think that's a lot of it. Uh, when there was an explosion, there were guys that and, and when I first started doing comedy to, to reflect back the, your question, when I first started, there were a lot. There was a lot more diversity. I mean, you you would show up at a club, and there would be a guy with a puppet or a magician, or there would be guys with with really weird stage uh, props, you know. And it wasn't looked up, uh, looked down on. It was just, it was versatile, you know. And I, and I really like diversity. Uh, now there's a lot more sameness, I'm afraid, you know. And and uh, it depends on what regions you go to. If you go up uh, the Northeast, like in New York, it seems like people are a little bit more um, monology, and, and there's not as much uh, as far as doing, you know, props or that kind of thing. But um, it's just a different delivery, you know. Are the comedy clubs uh, more difficult to work with? Are they they still pretty cool environments to work with? Is that just different owners, different places? It, yeah, it's it's there's no there's no one way to look at it. But uh, what I do know is that it's more difficult now if you don't have movie credits, it and that kind of thing. In other words, if you if you're not a draw, it's more difficult to to get work. Okay. You know, and there are a lot of really great comics sitting at home on a Saturday night. Yeah, that's sad. Yeah, that and there are sad. a lot of really mediocre names that you hear that are packing clubs because it's sort of like the a turtle in a bucket. You know, <laughs> people want to look at it, yeah. but but uh, they don't really have the chops, and they haven't. I think to really have the chops, you need to be out there working, not just the really nice clubs where people come to see comedy, 
but some of the venues where people really didn't come to see comedy. I mean, or maybe it's, I mean, I, I get as much pleasure working out of bars in Nebraska as I do some of the improvs that I've worked at. Man. You know? And who are some of the favorite comedians for you, uh, a pro? Who do you say, wow, when I listen to him or to her, I love their, their stuff? Well, I mean, um, and, and these are, you know, well-known names as far as TV, but Trevor Noah, you know, John, uh, I think it's, is it John Wilmore? Larry Wilmore. I'm Larry sorry, Larry Wilmore. Okay. Uh, these are guys that are really bringing it. You know, I mean, they, they bring it every day, people like John Stewart. You know, and it's not whether I align with their political beliefs, but just because they know how to deliver the funny, you know. And then people like Louis C.K., he's kind of hit a, he's hit really a, a peak, I guess, over the last couple of years. I he's like been Louis C.K. I do yeah. too. Yeah. Do you watch his, uh, any of his uh, television uh, things? I know he's got a couple of shows that are kind of dark and kind of different that he does. I've, I haven't seen anything in a long time, but I have seen some of his work. And I, I know people that know him and say he's just a great guy. I've never met him. Do you work blue? Do you, is that a, when you were starting comedy, did you think how blue am I going to work? Is that a part of, of, of just what you do? I, I'm curious about how you, the process for that. No, I, I don't consciously work blue. I mean, you, your, your stage shows usually an extension of who you are. I wasn't, I don't walk around using curse words all the time, right. but I do adult themes, you know, right. because that's who I am. I'm an adult and I'm, so I don't do children's parties right right so so i i don't consciously try to to be or not be anything i just you know and and more and more i'm starting to um you know when you when you write material it's usually a response to something and uh i'm kind of a smart aleck by birth and being you know i have five siblings that kind of keep me on my game right <laughs> so right right every one of them are just as Equally untalented or right. talented, depending on how you look at it. Right. But, uh, you know, I mean, you when you're raised up around that, then you sort of find your own personality, and that's who you, you become on stage as well. So that's how you write your comedy? You just look around and see things, and you just respond to it? Yeah, I mean, I uh, a good example, I remember, and, and I talk about this on stage, and, and it's only an example, but I remember being at a Target store, and my wife and I, and I go through the line, and the— and, it was actually $6.66. And I went, wow, six, six, six. That's kind of scary. The lady behind the counter says, it's just numbers and it can't hurt you. And I said, well, apparently nobody's ever slapped you upside the head with a two by four. <laughs> <laughs> but see, and it wasn't anything I thought about. It was just a response. It's sort of like bumping into somebody wearing camouflage going, excuse me, I didn't see you. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so that's, I mean, that's how, how you write material. And the more you get in touch with who you are, and I remember Bud Freeman said sometimes it takes 10 years for a comic to even find out who he is on stage. And Bud Freeman was the guy that I think ran all the uh, improvs right. out in L.A. So I think that's true. And sometimes it takes people forever. And there are people who have made a lot of money being somebody else, like Larry the Cable Guy. And, you know, they find a you know a personality, and that's what they do. So he's not country. He's not a country bumpkin kind of a fella. No, he's not. He's not. <laughs> no, Isn't he's that not. amazing? He he is for millions of dollars a year. I yeah. guess. <laughs> uh, that's so funny, and, and no knocking him, but I just I've seen your show, and it's so funny, and it's so all across the board, and uh, but somebody has a country accent, and they 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 hit it. Who get who? Well, as I that? said a while ago, there are really funny guys sitting in a basement somewhere, and on Saturday night, it's. You know, I mean, I know you know this on, on whatever it is. I don't care if it's a carpenter. I don't care if it's a plumber or a comedian or a musician. Uh, just because you're talented doesn't mean that you're going to be successful if success is money. You yeah. know, I mean, um, I feel like I'm successful because I'm happy. 
Yeah. And I know a lot of guys that are making a lot of money that are ready to put guns to their head. So, Ooh. you know, I'd yeah. rather be me. Yeah, I totally, I totally get that. Um, growing up, did you know you're going to be on the stage as a kid? Is that something that you just kind of always knew was in you? I don't think you ever know anything that when you're a kid. I yeah. think you, you know, you gravitate toward things. I mean, if, if I knew something, it would be, I, I know I'm going to be a great baseball player. So that was your deal. You loved sports and always still do. Yeah. Still do. Yeah. I, I love, I have a passion for baseball. Always have, but you know, that's, that's not what I became. And, uh, I'm not sure yet that I've become the thing that I'm supposed to become. You know, I think you you have to keep moving. You know what? That's one of the reasons I'm drawn to you. I think is, I see that that's still working in you instead of setting back. I, I know a lot of people who, get in their 40s or 50s, and they just are looking for an exit ramp to be able to get off and sit in a reclining chair and watch Fox News, and that's all they want to do. And then I see you still creating, still thinking, still dreaming, still becoming, and I think that's the way it's supposed to be. That's a big life to me. Well, that's what it is for me, but I can't speak for anyone else. I just know my my biggest problem these days is focusing on one avenue at a time because I start writing. I have over a hundred songs on my computer that I've written lyrics for, but I haven't finished, but I have about 15 or 20 of them ready to record, but I'm also working on my, my biography. So autobiography. So if you, you know, if you have all these different things, it's hard to, because I'll write poems, I'll write songs. Um, and then I write rants sometimes about different things and I'm trying to write a biography. So, so when you, when you have so many different things you do, you, it, it's real important to try to focus and do one at a time. And it's really hard sometimes. I'll get halfway through a song and then something else will hit me. And I mean, I'll write a song that's very serious and then in the middle of it go, oh, here's the line for this other song. Then all of a sudden I have to shut that down and write it down. It, the, the activity in your brain is, is, is it hyper? Is it, or do you consider yourself an ADD kind of a person? No, just I, that active brain? It's not that way. I, I don't. Uh, think of myself that way, and I, that's for somebody else to to say. It's like I, I can always tell someone that has at least one or two years in psychology because they're ready to give me a tag. Right. I remember one one night I did a show, and I'm very hyper on stage, and to different degrees depending on how I feel, or how much sugar I've had. Yeah. And I had a woman come up to me, and she said, "I bet you're manic depressive." And I said, <laughs> "I bet you've had two years of psychology," <laughs> because. She felt a need, and and I've really ran into that. I've run into that a lot. You know, people who are ready to give you a tag, right? You know, it's like you don't want to write anybody off with a with a, a phrase or a tag or a bumper sticker. I love that you're always thinking, always writing. You know, I started doing the blogs a few months ago, and uh, not nearly the uh, the volumes of of material that you're coming up with, but just having. Just that creative process of thinking, what, what do I want to say? How do I want to say it? And then sitting down and crafting um, a blog or an article. Uh, I like that. That's, 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 I can see where you, you're just always, it, it's a joy-filled day when you're able to create. It is, and it's the time when I feel like I'm 16. Yeah. But if you watch anything that I've ever written on social media, you'll almost always see edited at the bottom of it. That means that I wrote it. Then I went and went, oh, I, that's the wrong word. That's the wrong tense. Oh, I forgot to put the comma in. Always. Com- and, and I'll do it four or five times. And if someone's reading it and they'll like it, then they go back and go, wow, he said it differently. <laughs> and Because I do that. And uh, when I, as I'm writing my book, uh, what, I'm, what I find myself doing is I write it. 
And then I'll go back and read it and go, oh, I forgot to include this. And I'm doing the same thing. And at some point you have to stop and go, okay, I got to finish this, you know, whether it's a song. And I'm, and in fact, the musicians I work with laugh about this. They said, you know, until you record stuff, it's not finished. And I said, that's exactly right. Until I put it down. Once I put it down, I put then it you to move bed. On. You're right. to move on. So you're a perfectionist at heart? Well, you just don't want anything to be halfway. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, and there's nobody else can make that call for you, you know, but I've never recorded anything where I just said, Oh yeah, that's, that's as good as it's going to get. Yeah. But at some point you, if you're going to go move on, you have to stop and go, okay, that's as good as it's going to be now. And now I got to move on. Let me ask you this. You grow up in South Atlanta, Forest Park and uh good family. Um, when did you first get the inklings that showbiz was going to kind of be your direction? Well, I, I started playing drums. I mean, I, I was born in Kentucky, moved to uh, Georgia when I was around 12, and uh, didn't start playing. I, I got in trouble when I was around 15 with the, some other thugs in my neighborhood. And uh, what happened was that I just took an interest. I, in fact, it's crazy because uh, I've always been kind of a workaholic. When I was 15, I think it was 15, I started washing dishes at a drugstore. It was the same place that my brother Kenny had just finished and my older brother Billy had worked and he got promoted to something whatever all three of us went through this place and I remember beating on books and stuff and people going oh you play drums I'm going no but that's a good idea (laughs) and then I bought a set of drums from a guy uh, that was just a cheap set of drums and my parents were really uh, supportive and let me play and beat them and uh, didn't have any lessons. I just started listening to people. I auditioned for a band and got in that band. And I remember uh, later, years later, they told me that my mom came down after I started playing with them and thanked them for hiring me because it kept me from going out and being a punk. Wow. Yeah. Wow. See, I had the best parents ever. I mean, I hear people talk about it all the time, how they had great parents. And I let them do it, you know, let them go ahead and say it and yeah. let them think that they had the best yeah. parents. But I actually had the best. Parents. It sounds like it. It sounds yeah. like, oh, and they they knew how to they they didn't try to squeeze you into something that you weren't. They knew how to let you be. Well, they, they I mean they had six kids and everyone we're pretty diverse, you know, mob. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And uh, and I like every one of my brothers and sisters, and we're completely different. And uh, I guarantee you, I'm the most on the left compared to the rest of them. A couple of them are uh, really on the right. But we all care about each other, and the promise that we all made to my parents right before they passed away was no matter what we would all make sure we stayed in touch with each that's other cool. and we do that's very cool that's very cool so tell me about the hahavish new orchestra because i know that was a big deal I, I hate i missed that little era of daryl Rhodes. so tell me about what that was all about well we existed for around three years and what happened was there was a, a radio station called wiin wind radio a guy named ross Britton. He's a Georgia Tech graduate, and uh, he was just zany. You know, he was he was zany before people started getting zany. Right. And uh, I uh, I did a lot of I had a, the first band I ever played in was called the Celestial Voluptuous Banana, and uh, <laughs> we played a lot of uh, just what they call psychedelic music, and we were probably the the most the band that played that more than any other band in Atlanta. And we played in a place called the Catacombs in Atlanta. But anyway, we did all that and. And when I when I look at the music that I've done, there's three bands that I that I had. That that was the band I played in. It was a copy band. Then I had the Haha Vision Orchestra, and then I had a band called the Men from Glad. 
after the the banana broke up, I played with various bands. I went on the road playing with different teen teenage rock combos, and and um, was kind of burned out with not burned out, but I was bored with the music, and I started writing my own. And uh, I had people come over to my house with, and I had a little recorder, and I started taping really stupid songs. I had one called Leprosy Queen about having a girlfriend who you held hands with her and it'd fall off. And, you know, and so... And we're talking 70s? This uh, Yeah, that was around 73. 73, okay. Right? And uh, 74. And uh, so I, I wrote this song, and it was just a, a little recorder. And uh, I listened to Win Radio, and I was nervous, and I drove down. I was around 23, I guess, and I drove down, and uh, I put this song on the, the desk, and I walked out, and I was really, I was scared. I have never talked to anybody like that. And the radio guy, and I didn't get to talk to Ross Britton. Well, he listened to it. Next thing I know, I got this message from my machine that he was going to play my music 6 o'clock the next morning. So I got up, and I told all my friends, and I got up and listened to it. And I was, it was a big deal to that me. That is big. And then he, uh, uh, he said, if you got any more? And, boy, I started writing. And I wrote... I wrote a song called Suicide about a dance, how to kill yourself, and just all this stupid stuff. And he started playing it, and all of a sudden, people knew who I was. And I thought, well, maybe I'll put something together and do a live show. And we played, there was a, uh, uh, at the Lakewood Fairgrounds, they had a big concert. And so we were billed as the only uh, intentionally funny group yeah. on the bill. Yeah. And it was a guy named Mike Malloy put it together. Mike went on to be a radio guy. I remember Mike know. Malloy. Yep. And uh, anyway, he lost money. and uh, But it was still uh, very successful. And so I booked at a place called The Bistro. I booked uh, a couple nights, and we sold out every night. People couldn't get in. And we just took off. And the next thing I know, we were being written up in uh, Playboy magazine. Uh, we ended up being in Rolling Stone. And we started playing at a place called The Great Southeast Music Hall. And... Uh, we started getting some notoriety, started playing at the uh, place called The Other End, which is actually The Bitter End, um, which is a very famous club on Bleecker Street in New York. And uh, that's where Woody Allen and everybody performed. And we would play there, and Robert Palmer and Phoebe Snow and all these people would come to see us. And I became friends with uh, Doc Pomas. Doc Pomas is a Hall of Fame songwriter that wrote Viva Las Vegas and uh, Save the Last Dance for Me used to sleep on his couch and there's a documentary about him and they actually came to me for some stories and um but anyway that that was a just that that band just shot through it like a rocket and there was 12 to 14 people on stage depending on you know what we were doing we had a road manager and uh and you're the front man you write the material right, you're the boss right, you right. sign the checks well, what checks there were to yeah, sign. so not yeah. big money at the time. Well, when you've got that many people, yeah. even when we played, we played uh, the uh, counter inaugural ball. I, this is um, this is part of uh, my book, but uh, it was um, for the yippies, you know. And uh, they uh, they had wavy gravy. If you remember him from Woodstock mm-hmm. and and uh, Paul Katner and a bunch of different people showed up, and we played this this uh, in D.C. And uh, it's it was a it's a pretty incredible story that I really won't go into now because it's too long, but we we were doing all these amazing things and they were sort of counter uh, culture, and uh, we ended up I mean I mean in some books there was a book uh, written about Greg Allman or the Allman brothers, and they took some of the quotes out of the Rolling Stone that I said and so I ended we ended up in books and we ended up in a lot of different books that still I don't even know 
what all we're into. I, and so was it two or three years, and then it kind of had run About three its years. It did only because it was just too difficult. Uh, we were pre-MTV. Uh, and, you know, it. There, there are people who are like Weird Al Yankovic, who I understand is a real nice guy. I've never met him. Um, he does parodies. And uh, I, I applaud him for his success, but we were writing our own music, and we would play down the street. National Lampoon would play uh, maybe a club across town. The reviews would come out, and it would always be how we were so much better than what they were doing. But they had money behind them. Right. We did not. Right. You know, and we met with, uh, well, Capricorn Records came to see us. And at that time, uh, we were doing a bit about the Almond Brothers and, and Greg Almond. Um, and it wasn't real flattering. And they were Capricorn's baby. And they came to see us and went, no, we're not going to sign these guys. Wow. But intentionally, I just said, you know, if you're going to sign us, we're going to do what we do. You know, I mean, I could have not done some of the things I did. In hindsight, maybe it wasn't the smartest move, but my attitude was, well, I'm who I am, and if you're going to sign me, then you have to sign me. Yeah. And yeah. that's what happened. And, and we had, I mean, Jerry Wexler, who was one of the founding members of uh, Atlantic Records, came down to see us and talked to me, and you know, but he wanted to, me to go in the studio and have the uh, people at Muscle Shoals do the backing. I wanted my band. You so know? you were a hard, even though you're just a kid, I mean, you're just a young guy, but you very strong-willed about what you wanted and who you were and you weren't you weren't sometimes playing. i knew what i didn't want yeah you know and maybe that was more important um there was a uh root boy slim kind of legendary he was a great guy he's a yale graduate that did too much acid and he passed away about 10 years ago really nice guy he got a record deal on warner brothers and it really hurt us probably more than anything else that their record flopped and they had money behind them a lot of people compared them to what we'd we do. And we played with them at a theater in D.C. once. And uh, they went in front of us. And I went back and I went, well, they're, they're okay. They're, you know. But I didn't get it, you know. And as I say, I really liked him. And uh, when they got their record deal and it didn't do well, it really hurt us. Yeah, I can see how that would. Yeah. So when that when that comes to an end, do you immediately put together the third band? That's no. Your, so no, what I, did you do when you? Um, I floundered. Uh, for oh, that's the lost years. Yeah, I've I heard a, about I, the lost I a, years. I had some lost years. I, um, nice. I was in, I was in a relationship that uh, that uh, went the way that it did, and uh, I I really was cloudy for a few years, and I actually went to to Europe for a couple of months, and when I came back, uh, then I put a group together and wrote songs, but I really did have a, a trouble figuring out what I wanted to do. And I couldn't just do something. I mean, I, I played drums with people. In fact, I, I played um, in some honky-tonks not too far from here. I played on Moreland Avenue yeah. and Stewart Avenue. And I, I played with some, some guys that were legendary. A lot of people don't even know uh, a guy named Paul Peake who played with Gene Vincent and the Blue Caps, uh, the D.B. Bapalula. He was one of the early pioneers. And I backed that guy, and I, I played with a lot of people. I mean, people would come through like Buck Owens or Jerry Lee Lewis, and I played with a lot of these people on these bars, and um, and I enjoyed it. It was just me making a living. Yeah, yeah. I've read some of the legends about where what you were doing, and uh, it's kind of funny that that little era that people speculate on what happened to Daryl Rhodes. Um, so then you come back now. How quickly before you decide? I think I'm going to be a stand-up comic. Uh, well, it's funny because when I the Ha Vishnu went from seventy-five to seventy-eight. And the men from GLAD went from 85 to 88. 
And that wasn't by design, but I thought, wow, 10 years apart, almost the same time period, 10 years apart. And after that, um, I was so burned out on trying to put a group together and trying to get five to 10 people do the same thing on stage and get all that together. And, and the people I worked with were, you know, they were all very, very talented. It's just hard running just, a band yeah. and trying yeah. to trying to make enough money to keep feed everybody. So, um, at the end of 88, when I broke up the men from glad, I took a couple of months, uh, off. And then I think I, I had a friend of mine that was doing stand up. and he said, you should try this. And I went to see him at the punchline, do a guest set. And, uh, the headliner that night was Jeff Foxworthy and Jeff walks over and introduces himself. And he said, he used to come and see me all the time. And he was a big fan. And the same thing had happened with Brett Butler, who had Grace Under yeah, Fire. Yeah. Uh, when I was playing drums behind Jerry Farber, he used to have a little jazz club. Jerry does stand up even today. And uh, he had a, a little place over on uh, Far Road, I think it was, or West Paces Ferry. But anyway, he, I, I played drums behind him in kind of a jazz thing. And uh, one night he asked me, he said he had to do something when I talked to the crowd. And I used to do this bit about the CWA Christian Wrestling Alliance, where I challenged Jerry Falwell to a death match at the Omni. <laughs> you little pencil neck geek, you egg sucking dog, you know that kind of thing. And uh, so it was it was about watching TV and watching um, uh, TV evangelism and yeah. then also wrestling. And I kept changing the channel. Finally, they matched together, yeah. and I became that character. And it, it was a bit that I actually started doing when I'm doing stand up, and I entered some contests, and I would win the contest because I was so out you know, different than everybody else. But when I started hitting the road and started doing stand-up for a living, I actually had agents tell me, don't do that bit. We have a lot of religious people in the audience. I said, well, yeah, but this isn't about that. I don't want you doing that. And so that was one of the things I didn't like when I first started. But, you know, I, I started working on trying to figure out who I was and trying to write around that. And, you know, and I still, I still have a passion for, for doing stand-up. And I've been doing it since the end of 88, so what is that, 28 years almost. Uh, I don't do it as much, but I still do it. Um, I'm, I just did, uh, where was I? I was just in outside Oklahoma. I played a, a pretty large uh, casino there, and I did a couple of days about a week and a half ago. And I'm going to Nebraska a week after next, I think. So I don't, I don't fill up my calendar doing stand-up. And um, if it's there, I do it. And if it's not, I don't worry about it. i got other things to do. I know we, my wife and I have seen you a couple of times and uh, your shows are great. And I don't even know who to compare you to. I just know it's better than almost anything we've ever seen. I well, wish everybody you. could see you. I wish everybody could see you do your, your thing. Well, if they can, if they open up a club and hire me. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be <laughs> perfect. That'd be perfect. Hey, you, one of the things that so many things about you intrigue me. One is the baseball thing. I think it took me several years before I realized that you are like a historian. You know you know baseball. You know the the old stuff better than almost anybody. Um, hadn't even planned to ask you that, but you even collected. I think you've been kind of a collector of cards. And- I've got about three hundred fifty thousand. Oh. I've got the old tobacco cards. You know, I was putting them up on Facebook for people to yeah. see, and I had people go, "Wow, I never understood why people were were drawn to baseball cards, and now I see it's art." And it's like. I have the old tobacco cards, you know, with yeah, Ty Cobb and Christy Matheson, people from the turn of the century, and I've got some that are well over 100 years old, and they're art, um, and I like that. And every once in a while, I think about selling all this stuff, and I have a couple hundred baseballs with Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams and Mantle, and I've got 
you know, I've got one uh, Yankees baseball, and it's just people there in the Hall of Fame. So I've got, you know, Mantle, Ford, Barra, uh, Joel Sewell from the 30s. I've got everybody, you know, and I've met a lot of these people, you know, when they were alive. Most of them are passed away now. But I have all this stuff, and um, I can't let myself piecemeal this stuff and, and sell it. I want somebody to walk into my house and go, okay, here's a check, and I want it all, and then take it out so I won't look at it again because it it's really difficult to sell stuff like that a little by little. Oh, I bet. You Slow know? death. That would yeah. be it. Yeah. yeah, just take it, and I'll take the money and go put a roof on my house. Man, <laughs> man. Um, what, was the, what was the car that was so expensive that was – uh, oh, oh! What um, card is that? Honus Wagner. Honus Wagner. And that right. was a cigarette card, wasn't it? Right. The the story on that is, and I don't know how many exist. Uh, Wayne Gretzky had bought. That's what perfect, I remembered. Yeah. yeah. And the story is that uh, Honus Wagner was a teetotaler and he didn't smoke tobacco. He was against tobacco. I think it was a religious thing. And uh, when they put it on a tobacco card, he said no, and he was going to sue him. So they pulled him, but they didn't pull them all. And so there's. I don't know how many exist, but it's got to be a small number. And so instantly they became valuable. And they're by valuable, I mean at least a million dollars when it's in good shape and wow. probably a lot more. So there's not that many of them around. Man. Another thing that intrigued me about you when we first met, and I'm thinking we met 15 years, I don't even know, 10 or 15 years ago, but um, I'd never met anyone that knew more about music that not only knew the, the stars but knew the pioneers that maybe didn't get the credit. Uh, I remember asking you, uh, just musicians, to, to talk a little bit. You used to have always been a, a great lover of music, all kinds. Yeah, it's a passion. And uh, when you talk about people that maybe didn't get their due, uh, Sun Records. And of course, that's yeah. where Elvis you know, came out of Memphis, and that was Sam Phillips. And, uh, you know, you, you know about people like Roy Orbison or Johnny Cash, Carl Perkins, Elvis Presley. Uh, even Billy Lee Riley, who played guitar on some of uh, Jerry Lee Lewis's early stuff, and, and Billy Lee Riley passed away. He was from Arkansas, passed away about five, eight years ago. And I knew him uh, only through a friend of mine. And in fact, he took uh, one of my Blonde on Blonde, on Blonde albums, um, Bob Dylan album. And he played with Bob Dylan, so he gave Dylan the, uh, the album cover and he signed it for me. Mm. And, uh, but Billy Lee Riley's a guy, he had a song called. Uh, uh, my girl is red hot. Your girl ain't doodly squat. That was one of the songs. <laughs> and he had another one, Flying Saucers Rock and Roll. And it's been covered by other people. But he, he was just a great, it was, it was a great inspiration. But the guys like Warren Smith, Charlie Feathers, a lot of really, really great rockabilly, which is, I love. I love that, rockabilly that's a, music. That's a style you like a lot. Yeah. Because it, it's, uh, it's rock, but it's also country and has that swing. And there's a thing as a drummer, you swing on four, which is, um, you know, it's like one, two, three. It's kind of a, it's just a groove. And yeah. a lot of guys don't play that way. And a lot of the old guys do. And that's, I grew up listening to that stuff. And so I love playing that kind of music. So when I play with Chuck Berry at the uh, Chastain, I remember we started out playing and he looked back and he smiled at me. And it's like, I felt like, yeah, he knew I got it. Wow. You know? Wow. Now I remember, cause that was the time I think I was, had just met you. Um, you said Chuck was an unusual, unusual fella. Nice guy. But you said he, uh, he, he liked to get paid before he played. 
Well, yeah, he, his deal was he put it in a paper bag, he put it in his uh, guitar case, and he, his eyes never left the guitar case. I, I did an interview once up in uh, New York, in Southside Johnny. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he, he's uh, from the same area that Bruce Springsteen. They're, they all played together and everything. And he, So we're sitting there, and uh, they, the show was about, uh, they were showing the uh, Rolling Stone magazine had put out the 100 Greatest Guitars. And uh, it was it was almost like a, a Howard Stern show. It was, right. it was a real that area. So the guy, his name was Reverend Weeze, uh, he said, "Well, uh, today we have as a guest, and he had all these different guys there uh, that played, you know, artists and all these other musicians. We got a guy here that actually played drums with one of the uh, guys in this article. He played with them last Saturday. Uh, Daryl, would you play with Chuck Berry?" And I said, "Yeah." So we talked a little while, and we went on break. Southside Johnny comes over and goes. Yeah, uh, how was it playing with Chuck? And I said, well, I got along with him great, but I've heard the stories. And he said, yeah, when Bruce Springsteen played with him, Bruce was so proud to play with Chuck Berry in his hometown. And Chuck cussed him out in front of all of his friends. (laughs) 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 You know, so I had heard all these stories about him, so... Just a tough cuss? I mean, just somebody that's just a little ornery? Just Yeah, oh yeah, a lot of ornery. And when I met him, he was nice to me because here's how I approached him, and I know you get this. I went up to him, and uh, I figured, you know, I'll, I'll I'll take the bull by the horns. I went up and I said, "Mr. Barry, my name is Daryl Rhodes. I'll be playing drums for you tonight." You understand the oh, the yeah. wording? Yeah. I didn't play with him. I yeah. played for him. Yes. You're the boss. Yes. And uh, he smiled and he said, "Let's rock." And I said, "Sir, I fully intend to." And we laughed. And I went on stage. He counted off the song. One, two, three. And he stopped when we came in. And he looked back, and then he stomped his foot like he's counting it again. Now, that, to most people, would mean, oh, you're speeding up. You came in too fast. But I knew it didn't. If I don't have anything else, I've got good timing. The bass player says to me after the show, what was that about? You you weren't rushing. And I said, no, it wasn't about me rushing. It was about him marking the territory. It if you, was, know, if yeah. you know that about Chuck Berry, he was saying, this is my stage. Wow. And that's what he was doing in front of all those people. Yeah. And I laughed when he did it because I knew that's what he was doing. And so about a month later, the bass player who had said that to me was out in Vegas and went to see Chuck Berry out there. He did the exact same thing with the band he was playing with. Just his way of letting people know he's the dog. He's the big dog. Yeah. And if you walk up and you say, what songs are we going to be playing tonight? And I've heard about this, so I didn't ask him. His response will all be, Always be, we're playing Chuck Berry music. <laughs> he won't tell you, and you don't know. <laughs> and and the keyboard player that day that we played was Dean Daltrey. He plays with the Atlanta Rhythm Section. Dean's a, a great keyboard player. And uh, we had a meeting because we didn't do a sound check with Chuck. He just comes in, picks up a guitar and play, and you just jump on. And so the bass player is the one that booked the gig. So when uh, we got together before that, and we did a sound check without Chuck. He wasn't even there yet. And... Uh, the bass player says, look, when we start playing, no one on stage knows what Chuck's doing. So don't look at each other and assume that anybody knows. Just watch his hand, <laughs> yeah. and if you see a G, then jump in. Yeah. You know? well, I don't have to worry about that. I'm a drummer. Yeah. You know, I just have to pick up the feel. So, <laughs> so we start playing, and so Dean looks over and goes, what song are we doing? What song are we doing? And Chuck's playing, and the bass player walks over and gets in my ear and goes, we're screwed now. <laughs> 
Anybody else that's kind of that's been kind of interesting like that, or just uh, that you've crossed paths with? I know that's. I'd, I'd have to think about it, but there. I mean, I've uh, played. Uh, I remember playing with uh, Martin Mull and Tom Waits. Uh, there was a uh, Great Southeast Music Hall, which is one of the most wonderful music venues ever. Uh, we played there a great deal. In fact, uh, the Haha Vishnu. They had a choice between uh, having us or Jimmy Buffett do. Uh, New Year's Eve, and they always chose us because we were just the local favorites. Yeah. Plus, we were probably a lot cheaper. Yeah. But anyway, um, I remember that one week they had the Steve Martin Mole show. It was Steve Martin and Martin Mole, and they were playing together, and both of them were kind of heroes of mine. Steve Martin had, it was a Thursday night, Steve Martin had to do a college that he had already booked, so he couldn't do it. They brought in this guy named Tom Waits. I didn't know. Yeah. And uh, so Martin said, will not you get a couple of your guys and play behind us at the end of, you know, we'll jam. And so we all jammed that night. And uh, the sound man I knew, and we were going to record it. And Martin at the last man went, no, we, we don't want you to record it. And I'd give anything if he had. We have a lot of pictures from that. That would have been amazing. Yeah, oh, yeah. But there's a lot of things like that. I When we played in uh, Dallas, I remember uh, uh, I was a big fan of Tim Buckley. He was a great songwriter. Died a heroin overdose. He played in uh, in Dallas, uh, and he played there about a month before we did, and then he died. And I remember the guy saying, you know, we wanted to record him that night. Would have been a great thing to give to his family, but yeah. he wouldn't let us record him. You know, people are so scared that things are going to get out there, and, you know, they're not supposed to release them or whatever. But uh, I, that that's one of those situations I wish I had had a recording of that. But... Um, I, I'm. I think. I think that I've played with so many people, or met so many people that that were interesting. Like Iggy Pop, uh, he came and sat in with us up in New York, and I actually have pictures somewhere of me standing on his face singing, <laughs> laying down. But he he got up on stage, and uh, I've I've on my um well the CD I gave you, um uh, it's called uh, uh, Weapons of Mass Deception. And on the inner inside, there's a picture of me standing on stage and Iggy Pop standing next to me, and we're doing this thing on stage about I can't remember what the the deal was. We were making fun of punk or something, but he's uh he's kind of iconic, you know. Oh, very. very. Oh, oh well, and and uh, we had a a press agent up there, and uh, we were playing that night, and everybody was coming to see us, and uh, he was across stage, and he actually called the club and demanded they had somebody bring him in to present him. And there was nobody to present to. Everybody was in the club. Right. But he didn't want to walk in the club by himself. He yeah. just felt like he needed somebody to kind of bring him in. And I thought, boy, what a prima donna. Yeah, yeah <laughs> man. Let me ask you how you got the Jeff Bridges movie, because that was interesting to to watch a movie that was wonderful and to look and say, I know the I know the drummer. I know Daryl Rhodes is playing drums in the band. Well, the uh, executive producer, Michael Simpson, is a, a very good friend of mine, just a wonderful guy. In fact, in his emails, almost every one of them, he signs, your friend for life. That's and great. I, he's like a great that. guy. Yeah, he, uh, he in fact, uh, said, when I, if I die before you, I want you to speak at my funeral, and I want it to be funny. I thought, boy, there's no pressure there. Wow, wow. <laughs> But anyway, he, uh, I was doing a show in uh, Hard Rock Cafe down in Mobile, I think it was, and I wasn't feeling very well. I finished the show, went back to my room to go to sleep. As soon as I got back in my room, the phone rang, and Michael said, 
where are you? And I told him. And I had, uh, the week that he was asking me about it, I was already booked. But he asked me, he said, Could you, would you be interested in coming to Santa Fe and uh, playing drums behind Jeff Bridges in a show? He said, you don't have to play as much as you just have to know the song. You know, it's because it's, you're playing along with the track. Right. I'm sure. So I called the people I was supposed to play with in Tennessee and said, I'm going to have surgery that week or something. <laughs> I, I have dental surgery. But anyway, I, I ended up um, going there, and that's how I got it. And I flew into Albuquerque, and they picked me up in a limo. And the, the driver was saying, oh, yeah, we picked up Robert Duvall yesterday. And I thought, wow, my butt's sitting in the same seat. Yeah. Robert Duvall saying, you know, maybe some of his greatness will will jump onto my leg. But um, anyway, that so that's how I got it. And uh, it was a great experience. I, I came in. We were supposed to practice all night Wednesday. And I found out later that the other guys had played together. They didn't know me. And one of them sort of insinuated that, they thought the the guy was doing the music, Stephen Bruton, who was a guitarist for Chris Christopherson and Bonnie Raitt. He sort of said to the other musicians, they're bringing in this drummer. I don't know who he is. And they thought maybe that I was just there because I was somebody's friend and maybe didn't even know how to play. And so they had set aside hours. Well, I listened to the songs. And I came in and I knew every one of them. And about 15 minutes later, they said, okay, we're good. And they knew it was all right. Yeah, yeah. And it, that made me feel good, but I didn't know that until later. I didn't know, well, why did I come in a day early? So then that Thursday and that Friday, we, we filmed for 8 to 12 hours. And um, and then that was it. And then that um, Sunday, uh, they were uh, having a party. For Robert, uh, Robert Duvall was having a party. Uh, so I, yeah, I did Thursday and Friday, and Saturday I hung out and watched Maggie Gyllenhaal do her thing. And then... Uh, Robert Duvall invited me to play drums at the party. And uh, so I wasn't going to, you know, I just showed up and my wife flew in and they had this elaborate cast party. And then Jeff Bridges got on the microphone and kept yelling at me to come up. So I play with him and he's like a little kid. He grabbed the camera out of my hands and took selfies yeah, with us and yeah. stuff. Great guy. Um, you know, people always, you know, think that the that celebrities can be jerks and some of them may, maybe are. He was a wonderful guy. Was he? That's oh, he's good to guy. know. I thought he did a great job as a country singer. I thought I bought it. I bought him in the role very, very well. I thought he well, did a good job. You know what's funny about that is that uh, when we, when I was comfortable to talk to him, I mean, he came and introduced himself to me as if I didn't know who he yeah. was. So I, okay. So I remember we we did a couple songs, and I said, "Wow, you really sound good." And he looked at me as if if I had just you know. Gave him a, you know, like, wow, you think so? You think? And I said to Michael, the executive producer, I said, man, he acted like it mattered that I said that. And he said, well, it's because he knows you're a musician. Oh. And he doesn't still think of himself as a musician. Yeah. And I said, well, I just know that he did that character perfectly. He sounded he perfectly. Did. He did. And uh, I didn't even know he had a passion for music. But he, you know, they worked with him and, and he knew what he was doing. You know, I mean, he's a great actor. Yeah. But yeah, he sounded very authentic. Wow. Let me ask you this. On the road, you look like you're in excellent health. Um, uh, any lifestyle choices you made early on that you can say this was this was wise? Did you get into the drugs, the alcohol, any of that stuff that we no. associate so much? To? No, I've been a vegetarian for 44 years. Now, and what made you do that? That was way ahead of the curve. Um, well, to be real honest with you, as if I were going to lie, um, I um, I used to hunt when I was a kid. And uh, grew up in Kentucky eating groundhog and raccoon and all that stuff. My dad, you know, he lived 
uh, as a kid, he lived in the woods pretty much, took care of himself. So he taught us to hunt. Um, I think I was the only one of my brothers that really hunted much, and I didn't hunt that much. But um, I think as you get older, and I remember a guy named Gary Mule Deer. Deer he's uh, from Montana. He's a great comic. And uh, he was talking about as you get older, you lose your taste for blood. And it wasn't even that as much as I had a dog that I literally died in my arms. And I remember thinking, just looking at that going, you know, because he got hit by a car. And I remember for some weird reason, it's just one of those things. It's like somebody speaking to you. I went, you know what? After this, I don't think I can do it again. And I just decided I wasn't going to need more animals. And I didn't. After that day, it was like somebody hit an off switch. And I never, it was 44 years ago. Uh, that, that is a great story. Yeah, I, I like that. I, I believe that. I believe that. So you've always kind of stayed healthy. Do you do yoga or meditation, anything like I have, that? I have. I've gone through all that. And not to say I won't do it again. I you know, for a while I was, a, I was a runner and I used to run 10, 15 miles a day. And I, I did, uh, you know, races and all that stuff and not to be fast, but just for endurance. And I've always felt like I can run, I could probably run for 18 hours straight. Well, those days are gone. You know, I tore my knee up with uh, my torn meniscus, so I don't run. And I wish I, and I try to walk as much as I can. Yoga, I think is a, is a wonderful thing because it's, um, it doesn't put stress on your body and it's really good for your head. It's real slow. It's methodical. And, you know, and, and coupled with uh, meditation, I think it's, it's a real great approach to, to health. Are you disciplined with um, every morning having the same routine or are you very spontaneous and you just do it when you feel like doing it? No discipline. No I discipline. mean, I have a lot of discipline, but I don't apply it to that. Right. Um, Although I, it probably wouldn't hurt me to. Uh, I was doing the P90X. You know what that yeah, is? Yeah, yeah, I do. I did that for five, four years ago, maybe. And I did it for a couple of months. Lost about 25 pounds. Really getting in good shape. This is crazy. And the room I had set aside, we had plumbing issues. Destroyed the room for about a month. Had to redo everything. Once you're doing something so strenuous, strenuous, yeah, haha, Vishnu. Yeah. <laughs> once, you, once you're doing something so strenuous... And then you you're you, you're into it. And you you know you got the ritual down, and then you get off of that. It's very difficult to get back, and it really was. It was. I mean, I'm doing pull ups and push ups and one handed. You know this and you know all these uh, uh, martial arts moves. And I, I took martial arts for a while. And you do all this stuff, and it's really. I mean, my wife was just amazed. She tried to do it and couldn't, and she would say, "Wow, you're starting to get all this definition." And you know, it was really. I was really feeling good. But once I got out of that, I couldn't, and I even tried to get back into it, and I went, wow, I'm not here now. Wow, wow. Just watching your show, you look to be in as good a shape as anybody that I that I see out on the stage. You well, like- I mean, I, I feel good almost all the time. I rarely get sick, you know, and I, I mean, I, I try to do supplements and stuff, but I, I just, it's a, I, the only, only really bad habit I've got, and I'm really getting away from that, was sugar. But for some weird reason now, uh, I used to, I could sit and eat three or four candy bars. Now, if I eat one candy bar, it's really hard because my body's not processing it. Um, and I think my father was borderline diabetic. And I, in the back of my mind, I think that's that too. You know, so much of what we do in life has a lot to do with our state of mind. You know, and, and um, people, my wife will refer to herself as being an old woman. And I just won't put up with it. I don't ever refer, you know, and because people will, will limit you enough. You don't have to do it yourself, you know, and, and for people to refer to themselves as being 
well, I'm old now. I can't do this. Like, okay, then you are. Yeah. I'm yeah. not. I'm yeah. not. I'm not. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be creative until I fall over and I'm going to keep doing what I do until it's either not fun um, or uh, I just fall over. You know, it's like, it's all about your state of mind. It's real important. Yeah, I, th- I think that's brilliant. Hey, can we tell our listeners where they can find you? If they want to find you, maybe find when you're performing somewhere. Is there a, a spot that they should go? Um, yeah. Uh, my website is www.music-comedy.com. You don't know how many times I've told somebody, music-comedy.com, and they go, D-A-S-H, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you'll say hyphen. And sometimes I'll say it's a hyphen. And they go, well, how do you spell hyphen? Yeah. <laughs> But it's music-comedy.com or a hyphen, music-comedy.com. And um, I, I should be a little bit better about putting my schedule up. I used to put my schedule up. As soon as I nailed down a date, I'd put it up. Haven't been at discipline lately, and I need to because people go there and find out if I'm open, and then they get in touch with me. But um, that has uh, my website has a calendar that I need to stay on top of, has a lot of history, uh, has a lot of pictures on there, has how people can – order CDs. And also if you go to cdbaby.com, people can order or download music from there. Very good. I hope everybody will do that because uh, you're a funny, interesting, brilliant, bright, creative man. I'll send you a check. Yeah, yeah no, it's the truth. It's the truth. <laughs> hey, can we do a uh, lightning round? Just a, some quick questions uh, that I've, I've been trying to ask at the end of these podcasts. Um, my brand is called Big Life. And I'm just curious, when you hear big life, what does that mean to you? Uh, experiencing and making a difference. You know, like experience that. life and make a difference and make a difference to the positive. That's a big life. I like that. In fact, when you and I met 10 or 15 years ago, it was, um, that was just kind of a thing where it was just trying to help some some less fortunate kids. And I Ended up meeting Daryl Rhodes. That was a cool. Well, thing. then I'm gonna I'm gonna tell the story about what what drew me to you, um, since you've been so nice to say all these nice things about me. Um, that was kind of a Christian based camp for children that had been abused. I don't have any kids by design because, as I say, I couldn't do the prison time. <laughs> um, I like kids, but I you know I like to be able to get in my car and drive away from them. Yeah. You can't do that when you're a father. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, my brother in law Frank. Uh, Lovell, um, I think, was sort of the head of the camp, as I understand it. And um, my job was to teach, because I grew up fishing and and being out in the woods, my job was to teach kids how to fish. And uh, I would tie the hooks and get all the poles together. So anyway, one day we're we're there, and um, I see this little girl with pigtails. Cute little girl bouncing around. So I asked Frank, what's her story? And he says... She was raped by her stepfather so badly that she'll be wearing diapers till the end of her life. Now, I know this is a bummer story, but it, this speaks to a couple of things. So when he said that to me, <clears throat> I, uh, I walked away, and I remember started crying. I was just very upset. And I went down to the woods to be alone, you know, down by the lake, and I was tying hooks up and stuff. And all day long, this thing bothered me. Well, that night, if you remember, we all stayed in a cabin. And it was you and I, another pastor, my brother Billy, and Frank. And I was talking to you, and I didn't know you very well. And I said, and I remember this as well as anything. I know you're in the forgiveness business, but I'm not. And I said, and if I could find that guy, because I had already referenced him, and chain him to a tree, I think I would beat him till he couldn't breathe again. 
And you looked at me and you said, we all feel that way. I thought, okay. You didn't, you didn't go to some unrealistic, you know, not that it is, because I think, you know, Scripture means a lot of things to a lot of people. You could have easily started spouting off that you were human. And you saw the anger, and you, uh, you made me realize, oh, I feel that too. You know, because it's, I think that's a disconnect that sometimes people have in religions, is that you have to connect to people on a human level. I think you're so right. And and if you if you have scripture that's fine, but you have to make sure that people you know connect on on the other level as well. That was that was meaningful to me too and I I remember that and I'm glad that it I'm glad that it meant everything. It it meant okay, here's a guy who gets this, you know. And I don't even remember and he was probably a great guy. You'll know who he is. I don't remember the other pastor because I didn't connect with him. Yeah, I'm blank on that too. Okay, I, I can't okay. think either. Well, that yeah. may speak volumes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you another question. Do you have a favorite quote in that active brain of yours? Critics are legless men who teach jogging. <laughs> Who said that? I couldn't tell you, but I read it once and went, yes. I agree. I like that. Yeah. I like that. All right. Favorite historical figure? Mark Twain. Oh, wonderful. What what jumps out to you about Mark Twain? Because he took, uh, he knew how to uh, make things funny and interesting, and he made life uh, something that you are interested in living. You know, I read his stuff and go, <clears throat> and I've not read it all, and before I die, I hope I do. But he put things in terms um, that I really appreciated, and <clears throat> he just made you feel. I like people who can make you feel. You know, sometimes if uh, when I want to write, I'll listen to something or read something or do something that puts me in a frame of mind to be very depressed. I know that's a weird thing to do, but uh, I have a distrust for people who sing the blues with a smile on their face. Right. So You want to feel it? Yeah, I want to feel it. I want to feel the joy. I want to feel the other stuff. Not that I enjoy pain, but, you know, we've all had a little bit of that. So if you're going to write it, write it where people can feel it. And if you're going to hear music, it should make you feel. And if you're going to read something like Mark Twain and, and not get an appreciation out of it, then I think you're missing something. So yeah. that's why I like Mark I like, Twain. That's great. Um, what are you most grateful for at this moment? Health. Good health. Yeah, you got that. I mean, it's a it's a cliche, but when you got that, you got everything. And yeah. if it's not everything, you have at least the access or the yeah. ability to go get those things. Yeah. But yeah, but I mean, you know, I mean, I the list is a long one. I mean, I as I said, I had the best parents on the planet, and uh, they taught me a lot, and they gave me a lot of room to fall, you know. And so, and <clears throat> I figured out a way to to try not to fall as much. You know, yeah. they were just the best. And I have I come from a good family. Strong, strong you family. You do. Last last question. 30, 40, 50 years from now, who knows, but you will breathe your last and your friends and family will all gather to uh, say some nice things about you. And I'm just curious, have you thought about what you'd like people to say? Made life interesting and fun. There's no doubt that's, that that's, will be said. Well, hopefully. That's that's two positive things. Make a difference and try to make it good, try to make it fun, make it interesting, and make people feel like they want to stick around for a while. You do that every day. Well, we'll we try. <laughs> Daryl, thank you so much <laughs> for you. talking with us. Thank this has you. been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Do you have a website? If you do, there's a good chance it's powered by WordPress. My site, raywaters.com, 
It's powered by WordPress, and when it came time to pick a theme to design the look that we wanted, we chose Divi by Elegant Themes. It's one of the most powerful and versatile themes ever developed for WordPress, and I invite you to check it out right now by going to Divi, D-I-V-I dot RayWaters.com. Again, that's Divi, D-I-V-I dot RayWaters.com. And that little link helps us produce more episodes of The Big Life. Hey, if you're getting something good from listening to this podcast, why don't you take a second and rate the show in iTunes? I would appreciate it very, very much. And I hope you'll join us again next week. The executive producer of The Big Life is Neil Campbell, and I'm Ray Waters.